Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Let me start by saying, in my notes it says, Garden coming up on eight years. Do you guys know you're going to be eight years old pretty soon? Yeah. And you know the cool thing? We've had uh, four rounds of eight-year-olds. We have four kids. Eight-year-olds have it all figured out, don't they? They've completely arrived at maturity, just like you. No, no. You guys are still in this really cool place of childlike faith, childlike discovery. And uh, I celebrate. In fact, I was reminded of this because Darren sent me a text this week uh, where he said, you know, this weekend, and here I am preaching at the garden this weekend. He goes, this weekend, eight years ago, I was preaching at Rock Harbor, which was the church I was leading and helped plant. And Rock Harbor planted the garden. He goes, I was preaching at Rock Harbor one month ahead of our launch. And so we were going, oh, it's kind of a cool kingdom symmetry there that now here I am preaching at the garden. And we're not a month away, but we're in the process of launching a new church in Newport Mesa. And it's been an exciting time. We're taking notes like crazy from you, by the way. Um, because I feel like as somebody that's been leading in the church now for a couple decades, I I just want to learn it all over again. And I don't want to default to what I've known. And and the church I had a chance to lead most of those 20 years is an amazing church, but it's tempting, you know what I mean, like in life, just to go back to what you knew. And I feel like the the key word that that God has given me and our community, we have this little crew, It's in some ways it's the same as you guys, I mean, we, uh, we have a lot of young people. For you guys, young people as hipsters. For us, young people is like five-year-olds. We just have a ton of five- to seven-year-olds. They're creating all sorts of chaos. Although there has been a baby boon at the, at the garden, right? I hear you guys are crawling with kids. We're, we're crawling with the kids that are more than crawling. They're like running and throwing things. And for some reason, most of the places we meet have pools next door, which is never a good idea. So we're navigating all sorts of challenges. But... Um, but in some ways, we, like you, are just in this exciting place of discovering what it means to, to not just do church, but really be the church together. And that is what I love about Garden, that you guys have prayerfully, prophetically, um, really adventurously discovered your future. And really, that's what we see in the early church, um, to go back to the roots of the church in the book of Acts. And if you're, you're new to the Bible, we have the Old Testament, which really explains how God created the world and we messed up the world and he decided the world needs a savior. And in the New Testament, we discover the savior is Jesus, his son. And after four biographies of Jesus called the Gospels, we see the book of Acts. And after Jesus has come and lived and died and risen, we see there's this incredible handoff to what's called the early church. We're going to talk about that today, but it's the book of Acts that if you're in the process of birthing church, you want to hang out there. And so that's where our little church community, we have, you know, 50 or so adults and 30 or 40 kids. We are discovering in the book of Acts right now. And we just happen to be in chapter five, and that's where I want to take you today. So if you open up your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter five. Acts chapter five. And in Acts chapter 5, we find what would become the church really is in full swing now. I mean, like I said, Jesus has already done his part, and he does really a very clear handoff. He tells these disciples after he's risen from the dead, he says, go, 
You're to go out and change the world in my name. But don't go yet. You've got to wait. Wait for what? Do you guys remember? Power. The Holy Spirit. But it was, he says, wait for power from on high. And that's important for us to realize today. We're going to talk about power and authority later. And, and really, there's a sense of you are not authorized yet. You don't have what it takes yet. And I don't think they were under any illusion that they did have what it took, honestly. I mean, these, this remnant of men and women were, were pretty shaken, pretty disoriented when Jesus ascends. But they do wait, and they're waiting in this upper room, and then the power comes on this day of festival, actually not a day, just this whole weeks of festival called Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and brings power, and things begin to happen. Remarkable things. And this movement became known as the church is ignited. And as you read Acts chapter 5, I want to just pick it up, verse 12, in a place where cool stuff is beginning to happen. It's already been happening, but God keeps upping the ante. And we see in verse 12 of chapter 5, it says, The apostles, who are the leaders of the early church, they performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the people used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, or in some versions you may have, it's a Solomon's porch. No one else, sorry, no one else, yeah, dare join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from around the town, around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits and all of them were healed. So, whoa, there's a lot going on here. So let's back up and, and sort of unpack that. So we have what was the early church, and they're gathering in homes. We know that. We see that in Acts 2. But they're also gathering at this place called Solomon's Porch. And it's interesting, as they're gathering, we're going to talk more about what Solomon's Porch was and what the temple was, but I love this line where it just says, no one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded, but nevertheless, more and more people were added. So they were joining. And you see this tension those outside of the church are in. Because it's almost like they're both really uncomfortable with the church and really compelled by it. And you better believe that's where we're living today, right? I mean, probably never in the history of the church have we faced more hostility, at least in America, I shouldn't say um, around the world. But we're living in a time in America where there's huge confusion, huge hostility, but also in many cases, people are so compelled, they're leaning in, longing for something of what's being showcased. And it seems like there was something irresistible, irresistible about this group, that they had been put on display strategically in the epicenter of religious and political power in Jerusalem, which was known as the temple. Now, the temple, again, if you don't know your Bible history, which is fine, the temple started really with this guy Moses. You're probably familiar with him, Red Sea, People get across the Red Sea. Suddenly, they're not in a promised land. They're in the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that God did a lot of the training of God's people. In fact, just know, I was praying for a woman last service, and she's in the wilderness. And I, not in a cliche way, but in a real way, there's a sense of that's where God does his best work, is in those times of disorientation and dependence. And we see that in Israel. But one of the things God teaches Israel to do is to depend on him and worship him through something called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was basically the very raw beginnings of the temple. And the tabernacle was this pretty 
extravagant, ornate church in a box setup. You know, you guys do church in a box or a trailer in the garden. You know, it's not set up like this all the time. You unpack it. Well, they would unpack this thing, and the middle of it was called the Holy of Holies. Only one dude go in there one day a year. It was so holy. That was the high priest. And in the Holy of Holies, there was something called the Ark of the Covenant of Raiders of the Lost Ark fame. You guys have seen that. And you know, if you saw that movie, the Ark of the Covenant was a big deal because it basically was a hot spot for God's presence on earth. So the Ark, the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle represented God's presence, God's leadership, God's power. And through that, people would be very attentive to God, to following him, to worshiping him. Well, that's the roots of the temple. What evolves ultimately to a building? David wanted to build it. Solomon, his son, was actually given the go to build it. It's this incredible building. But over time and over generations, the temple gets encumbered with a lot of religious activity and a lot of compromise and a lot of extra stuff. And that sounds a little bit like the church, right? (laughs) A lot of churches get so encumbered with extra stuff. And so now, here we are, generations, thousands of years later. And the temple isn't just a building, certainly not just a tent. It's like an entire complex. Picture literally acres of infrastructure and buildings and rooms and systems, housing for priests, ways to sacrifice, ways to buy things to sacrifice. There's this whole thing set up. And what God does is he puts his people, these Jesus people, who still don't even have a name yet, he puts them right in the thick of that. Solomon's porch was one of the facets of this temple, one of, you know, one of the areas of the temple where you could gather. So every day, picture this, they're gathering at homes, but then they're also gathering in the temple because God wants to showcase something through them. And it's causing quite a stir. It's causing quite a stir. I was thinking, imagine this, you know, we, we have this new community that we're starting, and we're starting to outgrow our space. So we, uh, Amy was mentioning house churches, which we're so excited about because this is one way that we are very much in sync with the garden. Whether you know it or not, we are extended family already. You guys, it's funny, you know, eight years ago, Rock Harbor said to Darren, the garden, we just want to give you as much as we can in, in helping you launch. And, and there were some great things we were able to do. About a year ago, Darren said to me, the garden wants to give you as much as we can. And, and everything we have to give, we want to give back to you. So there have been ways your team has been encouraging us, praying for us, practically resourcing us, resourcing us. So we're on this journey together. And house churches seem to be one of those overlaps we're excited about. You're going to hear more about those. But it's very biblical that people really found that space of a home and a meal and family is critical to the life of the church. Almost non-negotiable. But not just there, also... They're meeting in this temple. And so we are in the same way in our church. Every other week, we're in home, Sunday afternoon. Like t- tonight, um, we'll be in our house and another house in Orange County. We're adding a third house soon, and we're going to be meeting in homes. And then the next week, we go and meet in a bigger space. And we're looking for a space. And I was thinking, well, what if uh, we decided to take advantage of one of the best worship spaces in Orange County? It's right off the 405. It's huge. It draws a lot of attention. And it's not the TBN White House. I want you guys to know that. It's not that. I I think that space is emptied out at this point. I'm not sure. It doesn't look like there's a lot of activity. But I'm talking about a place right across the street with a lot of business. It is an amazing worship palace called South Coast Plaza. Are you familiar with South Coast Plaza? Every day, thousands of people offer thousands of sacrifices to the gods of South Coast Plaza. 
And it is a very refined system of worship. There are many, again, stops along your worship pathway. But what if we put our little community right in the middle of that? If you've ever been there, there's this, I'm not serious. This woman's like, go for it. Yeah, I like, I like that faith. But there's a spot in South Coast Plaza. I've got a picture right now. It's, there's this carousel. You know what that is? And they have the, the way overpriced balloons that my kids always wanted that I never bought for them. But then there is a stage, and there's a little place, and I thought, gosh, what if we started showing up, not just Sunday afternoons, but in the mornings, every morning when it opened, and just started doing worship and teaching and communion and family, do you think that would go unnoticed in South Coast Plaza? I don't think so. Do you think that South Coast Plaza, whoever the powers that be, would approve of that? No way, because that would be hugely distracting, probably disrupting. I'm sure what we'd hear would be, well, there are permits and codes and this and that, but to be honest with you, it'd just be a pain for them because they don't want the systems of power to be disrupted. That's what it was like for this early ragtag band of Christians to be placed right in the middle of the, the temple system. And they're not talking about a different story. They're saying this is the culmination of the same story, the Old Testament story. All the things you've been worshiping in this temple up till now pointed to Jesus himself. That's what the book of Hebrews is largely about. But again, it is a huge distraction. And not only is it in the temple, it's breaking out into the streets. It's breaking out into the streets. And it it seems like this power that was on display could not be contained. It, It was being embodied by these people, spilling into the streets. People don't know what they don't know what to make of it. They don't even know, like it said, whether they want to be a part of it or not, but they can't turn away and they believe it must be real enough that they don't want to miss out on it because this isn't just about missing a sermon. This is about missing the chance to get healed. This is about getting, missing the chance to be freed. I was thinking this morning, wouldn't it be cool if everybody felt that way about church? I think you guys do feel that way about the garden. I really do. I mean, Darren's good. Actually, he's great. (laughs) But it's never been about Darren up here teaching. And I love the way he's led to to not make it about him or John. It's about what God could do in these moments, right? And it's like, I don't want to miss the chance to be healed. And not only miss the chance, they're strategically positioning themselves to be healed. And again, it's funny. These people don't even know exactly how it works. I don't even know that I know how it works still. But what they're saying is, if there's a God, if there's something happening, we want to take our best shot. So it's kind of like there, if you imagine outside these doors a day, if people just started lining up sick friends on mats outside on the street, hoping that John Rosine would walk past them because he somehow has the healing power. And it sounds ridiculous. It was happening. There was so much faith, so much expectation that not based on the strategies or attempts of man, but the power of God was so welcome in this community, it was breaking out across Jerusalem and it was freaking out these Sanhedrin, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, because it was usurping their authority. You guys tracking? Okay, now I have to find my place again. Okay, hold on, hold on. Um, Oh, you know, this is really cool. N.T. Wright, this is a second service special. I totally forgot this less, and and about half my notes. N.T. Wright is describing what's happening here and, and, and tying it to the church now. And it's talking about this power breaking not only into, but out through community. He says this, Thus the fact that so many people coming to Jerusalem and being cured was not simply a matter of a sudden burst of healing energy. 
It was about, and everyone knew it was about, the establishment of a new reality in a dangerous place. The power of the living God becoming concrete, definite, undeniable. Not simply a matter of a few people telling a very strange story and behaving from time to time like they were drunk. <laughs> it's when the church, listen, through prayer and wisdom and often in the teeth of opposition, acts with decisive power in the real world to build and run a successful school or medical clinic, to free slaves or remit debts, to establish a housing project for those who can't afford rent, or a credit union for those ashamed to go to the bank, to enable drug users and pushers to kick the habit and the lifestyle, to see hardened and violent criminals transformed by God's love. It's in these ways the people will take the message of Jesus seriously. Of course, there will then be opposition because we shall be invading territory that is currently under alternative occupation, but God's power will be at work and people will know it. God's power will be at work and people will know it. And can I tell you, as I, I was reading this again this morning, I thought of you, the garden, because that's what's been happening here. It's not just been about gatherings. It's been about broken lives, AIDS hospices, young kids, the poor, the needy, experiencing not just a one-time healing burst of power, but this growing momentum of we're trusting God to do what only God can do. And God knows, knows just what to do with those kind of people, as he has done through you, as we see happening here. And as I said, what it did in this case is it made these religious leaders very scared, very frustrated, very jealous. And so what happens is they throw them in jail. They throw the apostles in jail, and that doesn't last long because an angel comes and gets them out of jail. And the angel has an interesting statement for them. So as he opens the doors, sends them back out, he says this, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people about this new life. Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people about this new life. Or I love how this is paraphrased in the message. Uh, if I could find it in my notes, it'd be so great. Oh, here it is. Go to the temple and take your stand. That's what I like. Take your stand. Tell the people everything there is to say about this life and the focus on the idea of life. Actually, in the message, in some translations, it's actually capitalized because this is more than just an idea. This is a critical reality that they are called to embody, whatever this life is. In fact, it's interesting. In the early church, they didn't know what to call themselves. They really didn't. Uh, you know, as this thing's evolving and thousands of people are being brought into it, they don't really have this official name or banner or logo they're operating under. And it's in Acts 11 that we first hear this idea of Christian brought up. In Antioch, when the gospel is extended way beyond Jerusalem, it's said they're called Christians. Later in Acts 22, Paul is looking back on his days of persecuting the church. He was a guy that was this historic, you know, persecutor that became a pioneer. But as a persecutor, he said, yes, I persecuted people of the way. So that's another idea. You know, we've got, we've got Christians, which means Messiah people, people of the way. But really, one of the first names we see given to this early movement is the life. This is the life with a capital L, the life. And this is a really big idea. That at, at its roots, the church wasn't a gathering, wasn't a building, wasn't a club, wasn't a website wasn't a nonprofit organization. It was a life that needed to be showcased in the places it was most opposed. It was a life that needed to be showcased 
in the places it was most opposed. And for these early followers of Jesus, that place, one of those places, was the temple. That was a place it was most opposed. And so what do they do? The Bible says they go right back at it. So they're right back at the temple, right back at it, living out this life, talking about this Jesus. And then what happens? They get sent right back to jail. They get, well, really, they get sent back before the Sanhedrin on their way to jail. And maybe execution at this point. And in verse 28 of Acts, we see these leaders say, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. And I want you to remember that idea of name. In fact, the two key words today are life and name. And so already, these leaders are paying attention to the fact that there's stuff happening around this name Jesus that's causing the trouble. And we're giving you strict orders not to teach anymore in this name, not to heal in this name. You see throughout the passage, passages of Acts, the name come up is pretty significant. But Peter's answer to them, Peter's answer is pretty simple to the point and pretty profound. He, say, he says, look, it's, it's better for us to obey God than you, than man. We know you're important. God's a lot more important. If we're going to be in trouble with you or God, we'll choose you any day. So that is Peter's answer, and that only enrages these, these leaders even more until an unexpected voice breaks in, and his name's Gamaliel. Not to be confused with Gargamel of Smurf fame, by the way. I was, I was thinking about both those this morning and going, wait, was Gamaliel Smurf? No, it's, Gamaliel is actually one of the most respected rabbis of this time. In fact, what's really interesting is he be, becomes a mentor of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul. So he's Paul's Jewish mentor. And, you know, we know that, that Paul, among other things, was kind of the, the, the elite of, of Hebrews in terms of knowledge of the faith, and Gamaliel is the one that poured into him. And Gamaliel speaks up and says this. Let's see if I can find it here. He says, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. And before this, he's talking about, hey, there have been people that have come, sang there something, and it just fizzles out. He's saying, I've been around long enough to see people rise that say that they're the next great thing and see them fall. But he says, leave these men alone, let them go for their purpose or activity. If it's of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop it. You will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. So in a weird way, Gamaliel is right on the side of the apostles saying, look, I don't want to be on the other side of God. And so our best move is just to let this thing play out. And it's pretty cool because it says that, you know, what these men do is just go right back at it again. They, they get beaten, actually, so they don't escape unscathed. But even as they're walking out, they're high-fiving each other because as as it says in the message, they were honored to be dishonored for the name. And there is, again, the name. There's something about this name that's so important. And day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the end of chapter 5. They're back at it again. They, they never stop. They couldn't stop. Not only talking, but living, showcasing this life. So as we walk through this account, there's two words, like I said, I want you to think about life and name. And not just life and name, the life and the name. You know, this idea of life, too often, 
we see Jesus followers way too concerned with, with services and gatherings. And honestly, I've been not only a guy in the seats, I've been the pastor on stage, and here I am today, way too concerned with gatherings. Way too concerned with, you know, 60 or 75 minutes, and how do we perfectly create this experience, this wow experience. And that's really not what we see on display in Scripture. It's not that these gatherings are unimportant, but there's something far more important. And that's one of the biggest points of conviction and passion in our new community, is how do we move beyond just a great gathering and, and into a life together? How do we discover real life together? That's why, in some ways, this idea of house church is so critical, I think, to not just our churches, but the church is because that's where life happens. In fact, even meals, that's been one of the biggest ahas for our little community is there's something powerful about a table that we share together. And you know what's funny is that's strangely biblical. <laughs> that Jesus, you know, some of his best work was on the way to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. Most of it. And so this idea of, gosh, how do we relocate the church into where life is happening? That's something that we have become pretty passionate about. And we had a, a pastor, a friend of ours from Hawaii, actually, who's a church planner there. When he heard we were planting again in Orange County, he just said, Todd, whatever you do, make it real. <laughs> just make it real. Because Orange County, and you guys know Orange County. You mock us from this side of the, the orange curtain. <laughs> you know how desperate we need real, right? Because we have so many people and so many families that are hooked on the idea of a good life that is ultimately just really expensive and really empty. And so the idea is, gosh, how do we push church out of just gathering and into the reality of people's lives? But that's impossible in our own authority, in our own power. We're already discovering this. It is hard. That's opposed ground. We can pull off a cool gathering, but to really live this stuff out, what I've discovered and what we're discovering is we have to have a power source, an authority that is not our own. And it's funny, we have wrestled. There's a reason I'm not announcing, and the name of the church is. We've come up with like so many options, and I've, I'm the kind of guy that gets really obsessed with that. I want to see the logo. I want to see the logo. The power is in the logo. It's really not, right? And I think... The, the, the humbling reality is going, you know, there's only one name that matters. It's Jesus. If Jesus, if his name is over it, over what we're attempting, something shifts. And that's what we see on display here in Acts. Again, they didn't even know what to call themselves. They just knew that they had to keep healing in the name, teaching in the name, living in the name and under the name. And that's why the name is so important that the life that we are called to live, the authority needed is only possible in the name of Jesus. Not our name, not our strengths, not our position, not our striving. And it's interesting, when we try to rely on those things, I've discovered it only leads to more and more insecurity. You know, I remember a time when I was walking in a challenging moment, very insecure. And it takes me back a long time ago, decades ago, I was on my, the quintessential like college European adventure. Anybody take one of those like Eurail adventures where you travel all over, you know? And I did that, you know, it was a thing then. I'm assuming it's still a thing now. But we bought the pass and for six weeks, we went all over, no, more than six weeks, a couple months, we went all over Europe, hit 14 countries, just me and my friend. It was epic with a capital E. And we, we had this course we charted and the last country was Spain. 
and then we're going to go back to France. We're in the south of France. We're going to go to Barcelona, then go to Paris and fly out of Paris. And on the night train from Cannes, on the south of France, to Barcelona, something really bad happened. Um, night trains were great because you were getting somewhere and it was cheap. You could sleep usually. And we fell asleep. And I had one of those. You guys remember those? Maybe you still have these. I don't, seem to, I don't see them around Europe as much anymore. But these little money pouch things that you kept your passport in, your traveler's checks. I mean, this is how dated. You guys remember traveler's checks? Those were a thing. And I had them. And it was real money. And we lost those. I lost those. But what happened was overnight, as I was sleeping in this car with my friend, someone came in and cut that thing right off my neck. So it was actually around my neck. I, I made the mistake of not tucking any of my shirt. But it was cut right off my neck. I wake up in the morning, just a strap. And panic ensues. Because first of all, I've lost my money. But more importantly, I've lost what? My passport. And so here we are. We arrive into this train station um, on kind of the Spanish-French border. I can't remember the name of the town. And I'm just realizing I can't get through. I'm not permitted to go into Spain. And so it becomes this real heartbreak moment for my friend and I because we've had this bromance all the way across Europe. And now he's going to go into Spain to Barcelona because he needs to. He needs to check it off the list. I have to go straight to Paris and figure it out. And so I say goodbye to him. We hug. He goes through customs. I'm waiting for the train to go to Paris. And suddenly I notice it, it's almost like a backyard fence with a gate, you know, like that we see at the front of houses. I see a gate, and it's just got a crack in it. I'm like, huh, that's really interesting. I don't even know what led me. I'm just going to say it was the Spirit of God, even though I'm sure that's not true. But I just got led to the gate, and it was open. I stepped through the gate, and suddenly I realized I'm in Spain right now. I'm not kidding. I did an illegal border crossing without even knowing it, without even attempting it barely. Somehow that gate got me through to the other side. In fact, I'm watching my friend go through customs, you know, getting checked and patted down. And here I am, an illegal alien in Spain. And it was thrilling. It was exhilarating. It's like, yes, I did it. And then terrifying because I realized now I'm in Spain without a passport and I'm illegal over here. And, you know, that whole day... We tried to see cool sights, and the whole day I was walking on eggshells, I felt like. Because I just felt like somebody was going to call me out, or a police fan was going to pull around the corner. There he is! You know, today that would happen. Apparently this is way before TSA or whatever they have. But I just remember I did not feel confident walking that soil whatsoever until we finally found the U.S. Embassy. I waited for many hours. I was able to somehow talk them into the fact that I was a U.S. citizen, and I was issued a temporary passport. And that passport made all the difference. Because my ability to fake it in Spain was zero. I didn't look Spanish. I couldn't act Spanish, talk Spanish. I couldn't just pretend like, no, I belong. And I couldn't even stay under the radar. Even when I was trying to lay low, I felt an insecurity. But when I had, and it's, this isn't the one I had, this is a newer one, but when I had my passport... I could walk as an alien in that culture with a confidence that I have full authority to be here. And it's not authority in the name of Todd Proctor. Actually, technically, I was reading my passport this morning. It's the authority in the name of the Secretary of State. Did you know that? Who operates under the authority of the president. And the Secretary of State tells me, if I can find it, that he is requesting that I would be permitted to pass without delay or hindrance 
and in case of need, be given any lawful aid or protection as a U.S. citizen. I love that. So I can walk with freedom, and if I need help, I'll get it. Not because I'm in Spain, but because the U.S. is saying, we'll vouch for him. We authorize him to be there. And, you know, I think about that example. It's kind of silly, but there is a sense that we are on foreign ground. You know, to say yes to Jesus suddenly changes your citizenship. Do you know that? To say yes to Jesus says, I don't belong here anymore, but I am here for a reason. And I'm part of building, establishing, pioneering a kingdom colony right here on earth. That's why you see written and talked about so much this idea of as in Long Beach, as it is in heaven. Well, how do you say it? In Long Beach, as it is in heaven. That's the idea of we are establishing now a, a different sort of existence here on earth. God's the one doing it. We get to be a part of it. But that's terrifying because that is opposed to ground. And what's not going to work for Jesus followers is just to fake it. <laughs> Go, well, if I can only act a certain way or pretend like I'm confident that that'll be enough, it will not be enough. In fact, my experience, the harder we try, the more I strive as a person or a pastor, the more insecure I feel. And instead, there's this authorization given, not in the name of the Secretary of State, but in the name of Jesus that we need to have, that these early Christians discovered. They discovered a source of authority that empowered them to live the life, and that was in the name of Jesus. And what's cool is, listen to this, Jesus first received that authority himself. Do you know that? Here's Jesus. He's born in a manger. We all know the songs and have the manger scenes at home. And then lives 30 years pretty much in obscurity. We don't know much about what happened then. But when he's ready to go public, what's the first thing he does? He gets baptized. And as he's raised out of those waters, what happens? He's authorized by his father. His father. And, you know, we see the spirit coming in, at Pentecost. That's what made the difference. The spirit comes in that moment as a dove. But there's a voice, and it's his father's voice, the voice of all authority. And what that voice says is, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I love the, the message version of it is, this is my son marked and chosen by my love. I choose him. I've marked him. I'm already pleased in him. And listen to this. It's not because of all the cool stuff Jesus did. We don't know about anything he did at this point. So it's not like he, he built up this great resume and then said, okay, here, Father, will you approve of me? No, instead, he needed the approval of his father to go do the stuff. And how much more do we need that through Jesus from the father? And it's ours. You know, I was thinking this morning, I, I've, I fly a lot with a role I'm playing with Alpha all over the world, really, racking up a lot of frequent flyer miles. And I got into this thing called the Admirals Club for American, which is one of those clubs, you know, most of us are on the outside looking in. I've finally gotten in. It's pretty cool. But my kids think it's the bomb, let me tell you. And we were on a trip recently, and we discovered, I was even sure, that I could get my whole family in because of my name. Todd, actually, Christopher Proctor, that's my real name, just between family. Christopher Todd. Christopher Todd Proctor, I'm the name on the, the official you know, role, whatever it is, and then anybody that's related to me, any other Proctor can come in with me. 
And my kids were living it up, man. I mean, like endless Mountain Dews or, you know, peanuts or M&Ms, whatever they have in there. It's funny, even when we landed in the airport we were going to, they wanted to go back in the club. It's like, no, 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 we're going on vacation. We're not hanging out in the Admirals Club. <laughs> but they were so excited to get in. And that's how we should feel. That's how we should feel. Because through Jesus, we're on the list. We have access to not only the place, but the power. And that's what I want you to hear today, is I have lived way too much life as a Jesus follower and even more as a pastor trying to do it in my own strength and strategy. That's kind of how I'm wired. I mean, Darren could tell you that all day long. We've had a lot of conversations. I, I tend to go to my head and, okay, what's, what's the best way to do That's not bad. But when that becomes my confidence, it fails me every time. And I just wonder, for some of you, where have you placed your confidence? And today... Here are two things. First of all, you're not called to a gathering. You're not called to a church membership. You're called to a life that happens in what's called the church. And you're called not only to hear about it here, but go live it out there. And that's terrifying because that's opposed. But the good news is we have been authorized by a power source outside of us. This authorization isn't something I could provide. It had to come from outside of me. You've been authorized because Jesus, who is authorized by his Father, says, you are mine. You can heal in my, my name, live in my name, teach in my name, do life in my name together. And that's where the power lies. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.